I pulled up the video uh, on, I guess it was on YouTube, from uh, when we did Easter during the pandemic. And I don't know how we, I don't know how, whatever. That, that looked like the lamest <laughs> Easter service ever because I'm just standing by myself up in the front of the sanctuary and we got people sending in recordings. And I'm sure it was great at the time two years ago, but looking at it now, I'm so thankful we're not doing that. And it had me just very mindful of that moment how thankful I am for all of you and how much uh, I was just, I'm excited to celebrate Easter with you. Like I know that Easter is what it is because of the resurrection of Jesus, right? But the celebration of Easter is what it is because we're a church family together. And it's when we come together and we celebrate that. And so I'm so still thankful that we're not back in 2020 and I'm preaching to a bunch of cardboard cutouts in the sanctuary and, and we're sending that out, right? The other thing that that uh, uh, had me think, though, then uh, my heart went out to those who can't be with us today, people like Kathy Mills and Jack Bromley and Dick Hartzell. And I know that uh, our, our service is being streamed, I think, in Kathy Mills' hospital bed. I'm sure Jack and Joyce are watching. I don't know if Dick is getting this where, where he is. But so uh, I would like to just take a moment, just turn around. The cameras are in the back, if you don't mind, and just wave and say hi to Kathy. Say hi to Dick. Say hi to Jack. <laughs> Guys, we miss you uh, very much. Um, our hearts are with you, uh, especially you, Kathy. You've been through the ringer uh, here for uh, quite a few weeks now. We are all praying for you, praying to God. Doctors will get this figured out and uh, be able to resume life. But in the meantime, know that we're with you in heart, we're with you in spirit, and are praying that the Spirit of Christ would lead you in a rich celebration of worship today as you're not able to be with us. We look forward to when we're uh, joined together again. At this point, I'm going to let you sit down for just a quick second. Um, instead of reading our scripture right now, I'm actually going to intro our sermon, and then I'm going to call our scripture reading uh, forward. And so, you know, as all week, right, I've been looking forward to these services where we get to remember and celebrate together, and I was especially looking forward to Easter, to celebrating with you all. And I can't tell you how exciting it is for me as well as a pastor to just to talk about resurrection. It's a joy, it's really a privilege to get paid to <laughs> just to spend a week uh, studying resurrection, thinking about resurrection again, reading books about re- re- resurrection and the passages, and then to prepare a sermon where I just get to talk about this event, which is the most meaningful event in my life, uh, the event that gives meaning to every other event and every other relationship and circumstance in my life. So it's a wonderful privilege to share that with you. It's also something of a daunting privilege uh, because I, I think, how in the world do I do justice uh, to this event that is so meaningful to me and gives meaning to everything in my life? How do I do that? How do I give something justice in a reasonable amount of time? I could literally talk for hours on resurrection. Uh, the other reason why it's a little bit of a daunting task, and I was thinking about this a lot this week, like how do you talk re- resurrection? How do you preach resurrection in, in 2022? Or how do you preach resurrection in a day and age where, if you're at all keyed into the news, right, it's just wave after wave of things to be anxious or fearful about, or it's wave after wave of things to be somewhat sad or burdened by, or it's wave after wave of headlines to argue about or to get angry over or to become cynical and jaded by. And the thing is, like, I think that's... It seems to me that's kind of this tension that our culture is in, where on the one hand, we still hold out for hope. 
And we still hold out hope that there can be such a thing as peace and reconciliation and relationships restored and justice for those who have missed out on life. Like we hold out for hope. And at the same time, I think we're a super cynical culture. And we're very cynical of anybody who comes with messages of hope. I think it was how many years ago when uh, Barack Obama was running his first campaign for presidency. Like his initial campaign slogan, uh, I believe, was change that you can believe in. Uh, but they, you know, tested that and polled that. And surveys came back, that's uh, nah, not going to go over well because every, we're too cynical. And nobody buys that. Nobody's going to rally around that. And so they changed the message to change we need. <laughs> and that, yeah, that'll work. Let's go with that. And nowadays, I don't even know if, you know, politicians and candidates even hold out, bother holding out a message of hope and promise and change anymore. I was up in Port Richmond the other day getting kibasi for the Monday Thursday service, and there's a big billboard already advertising for, you know, the upcoming midterms elections. And it's some candidate, they're not laying out a promise or a vision or a hope for change. It's just him there standing in boxing gloves <laughs> with the names of the opposition on the other side, like, right, he's the big diploma. Like, we just don't even mention, bother throwing out messages of hope to our cynical crowd anymore. Let's just talk about getting out the old rascal, whatever, get them out of the picture. Okay, so which has me wondering, like, what, what are you bringing with you this morning as we talk about this incredible message of resurrection? Right? Are you a lifelong follower of Jesus? You've enjoyed the services throughout the week, and you're just here to celebrate resurrection. Great. Or are you here and you're somewhat weighed down and burdened by the hardness of life, and you're tired, and it takes everything for you have just to come in the door, let alone to muster up energy to worship. And for you, resurrection, it takes energy just to bring the idea of resurrection into your life and into the present. It seems distant. It seems vague. It seems remote. Or maybe you're just cynical and jaded. And you've heard messages of hope and promise and and you hear to talk, hear resurrection, and you think, oh, isn't that nice? Or maybe you're here, you know, by an invitation of a friend or family or whatever, or maybe you're just curious about Christ or Christianity or whatever, and you come with this heavy cynicism that we're going to talk about resurrection and hope and promise, and you think, well, isn't that nice? Or can you believe there's actually people who still believe this sort of thing nowadays? Whatever you're bringing to the table this morning, as we come to God's word, I just want to invite you just to, just to sit that down for just a little bit. And just to just listen to John. We've been working through John, the second half of John in our Easter week service here. And we're going to close it up here with John 20. Just listen to John declare to you this news. And maybe hear the invitation this morning that John is inviting you to put on new glasses, new lens. And to just consider the possibility of your life and the world around you through the lens of this event of resurrection and what that means. I'm going to invite Annalise to come forward. She's going to be our scripture reader today. She's going to read for us all of John 20. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I want you to take the whole thing in. We're not going to be able to preach expositionally through every single verse in here. We'd be here all day, which I can do that if you want me to, but I'm going to limit it to three things that I want to highlight for you. I want to show you how John is presenting to you a resurrection that it is fully legitimate to believe in, and a resurrection that is loaded with meaning, really glorious and beautiful meaning, and 
And then we'll say real briefly that this is a resurrection that affirms your deepest intuitions about life. Okay? So now, if you don't mind, let's stand in honor for the word of the Lord. And Annalise, would you come read it for us? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus, on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their house. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, 
my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's the reading of God's word to you this morning. You may be seated. Okay, so that last line there, I tuck that away. That's really the structure of this whole thing. Uh, These things have been written. John is writing these things so that you may believe and that by believing, you may have life. Okay? That's the point of the sermon. (laughs) Let me unpack that for you. Let me show you how he unpacks that. Again, a couple things. He wants to show you a resurrection that it is fully legitimate to believe in. Right? And he does this in a couple ways. All of the gospel writers, they do this in their own way. John has his own unique way of presenting this to you. And first of all, he actually does what all the other uh, apostles, um, or all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to do. And they're going to make sure that you understand that, first of all, there was an empty tomb and there were people who experienced the risen Christ. Okay? That might not mean a whole lot to you, but in the ancient world, they're not even going to entertain the notion of resurrection unless you have those two things clearly demonstrated, right? If you come and there's an empty tomb, but there's no encounters with the risen Christ, you're going to be like Mary, who shows up in an empty tomb and just thinks that somebody came and stole the body of their Lord, and she weeps, and she's very upset about it. On the other hand, if you think you've had an encounter with somebody after they've died, but there's no verification of an empty tomb, then... Uh, you've probably just had a bit of bad beef. <laughs> and you woke up in the middle of the night and you saw something walk by and, and you thought you saw something that you didn't. Or, which was totally possible if in an ancient mindset, you, you saw an apparition or you saw a ghost or a spirit. Right? It was not at all out of place in an ancient worldview to believe in the ongoing life of the spirit after death. And it was quite possible that you might have an encounter with somebody's spirit or soul after they had gone on. But John wants to be clear, as do all the other gospel writers. No, we're not talking about that. We're not talking here about the spirit of Jesus who shows up to deliver a message to his disciples. That will come later, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the spirit of Jesus that comes to reside in your heart and fill your heart with warm and wonderful things. Again, that comes, but that's not what John is talking about the other gospel writers. We're talking here about flesh and blood. Body and bone, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ walking out of the tomb. We're talking here about a creator who is committed to his physical creation and is not at all content to let the powers of hell, the power of death, the power of sin just do its worst in his creation and take over. No, he's after resurrection of the physical world, the physical creation, these physical bodies, right? And John wants to be clear. That's what's happening here. We have an empty tomb, and we have encounters with this risen Christ. You read through the Gospels, you read through Paul. Hundreds of people experienced the risen Christ. Okay, so that's one thing Paul, uh, John wants to do right off the bat. Uh, another thing that Paul, or I'm going to keep saying Paul, Jesus, or, 
Another thing John is going to do here is he's going to tell you the story straight. He's not going to play games in this story. And what I mean by that is, like, if you were to take a super cynical approach to the New Testament, to the Gospels, to the story of resurrection, right? If you were coming from a very jaded, cynical perspective, you may be of the perspective that, okay, these Gospel writers fabricated a story of resurrection so that this whole Jesus movement and this whole Jesus religion would continue. And since they knew Jesus and followed him, they would be given positions of prominence and power and respect in this renewed religion and everybody would like them or whatever. So they fabricate this story for their own well-being. Okay, Uh, But you can see pretty clearly (laughs) in the way John tells the story that he's not interested in doing that. Right? Example number one is where the text starts early in the morning as we come to the tomb. It's not the disciples who are gathered outside the tomb looking for their Savior. In spite of the fact that Jesus told them time and time again, hey, the Son of Man, let me tell you, needs to suffer and die, but on the third day, he's going to rise again. Uh, Maybe one of my favorite parts of Easter is the sunrise service because I just love that whole transition from darkness into light and celebrating that. And I enjoyed coming out here early in the morning and setting up for that, you know, getting the music stands and the microphone that didn't work so well, getting all that out there. And like, I just imagine if I was one of the disciples, I tend to think, man, from the moment they put him in the tomb, (laughs) I'm camping out. He's told me on the third day he's coming back. So I'm going to have my tent there. I'm going to have my, my lawn chair with my coolie right there. I'm going to have the grill out so we can have some smoked meats going from the night before so we can have a grand old celebration when he comes walking out of the tomb. I'm going to be there. But you notice who's not there? The disciples are not there. They didn't get it. Or they didn't believe it when Jesus told them time and time again, fellas, I'm telling you, I'm going to have to suffer and die, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. Eh. And this has kind of been a theme through the Holy Week, right? Disciples, when Jesus asked them to pray while he's in the garden, disciples are falling asleep. Or, I'm sorry, when, when Jesus asked them to keep watch, they can't even keep watch, they're falling asleep. When the guards come and take Jesus away, most of the disciples, it seems like they scatter. When Jesus is experiencing the agony of the cross, where are his disciples? Well, it seems like there may be a couple of them around, but the rest of them seem to have scattered. And on here on the first day of the week, the day of the most significant event the world has ever known. Where are the disciples? Nowhere to be found. In other words, he's not crafting a story here that's putting him in, in very good light. He's not crafting a story for you to think positively of him and to hold him in high esteem. That's not his interest. He's interested in just telling you the way it was. And the other example of this is that who was first at the tomb? Or who was first to see the risen Christ? Or who was first to get the commission from this risen Christ to go and declare the good news to the rest of the apostles? Sorry, it was a woman. And just consider that for a second. It's a heavily, you know, patriarchal society where women oftentimes were not even allowed to speak public, publicly, let alone give public testimony to anything. And just consider this. It's a woman who is first to see the empty tomb. It's a woman. I mean, just think about this. Jesus doesn't show up when Peter and John are coming out of the tomb. He waits until it's just Mary, and he reveals himself to Mary. And then he commissions Mary, a woman. And not just any woman, too. This is Mary from, you know, that that town of Magdala along the uh, 
the Sea of Galilee. And she would have probably been known as the crazy lady because she had seven demons in her that Jesus has to come and cast out. This is the woman who sees it first. This is the woman who is then told to go and to give public testimony to the rest of the apostles. In other words, this is not the kind of story that you tell if you're trying to propagate a movement or hold yourself in high esteem. It's not John's interest. He's just telling you the way it went down. Again, I told you we can't talk through everything in the passage. But there's this other scene in here where John where John records, okay, he appears to Mary, and then he comes and he appears to the, to the other disciples when they're huddled up in a room with the door locked because they're afraid that the authorities are going to do to them what they just did to Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the midst of them. And can you imagine this scene, right, when they're just all huddled up in fear, wondering if this day or the next day is going to be their last. And the risen Christ comes in their midst, and he says, peace to you. And we're told that immediately they're filled with gladness. And we could talk all day about all, you know, that and that transition and what's going on there. The part I want to highlight is actually the main action there is the commissioning that takes place. Jesus breathes on him, them, his spirit, empowers them, and then he sends them to go out and to announce this incredible news of that a, the dawning of a new day and the dawning of this new creation project and the dawning of this kingdom restoration project and to announce forgiveness of sins. Right To announce that no matter how you may have participated with the darkness or how many you have participated in the old regime of evil, man, because Christ is risen, there is forgiveness now. And I think what John is doing in this little episode is he's giving you some insight into the birth of the church. The birth of the New Testament church, that is. Right? This is the part where the Spirit empowers and then they're commissioned to go out. And he's maybe giving some explanation here for uh, the explosion of the church. And the reason I'm highlighting is this is, I guess in my own life, there's a myriad of reasons why it is totally legitimate to believe in the resurrection of Christ. But the reason that has perhaps sunk most deep in my own heart and life is uh, 2,000 years of church history and the explosion of the church onto the scene after the death of its central figurehead. Right? And I'm saying it that way because, I don't know, a couple years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you get this guy, Simon Bargiara, Giara, Gianna, Giara. And, uh, you know, he's, he comes in as a self-proclaimed king of the Jews and people start to consider him as such. And so people start to rally around him and they think, yeah, he's the king and he's the one who's going to come in and he's going to cleanse the temple and he's going to kick out the pagan oppressors. And so they rally around him and they start to form this resistance movement. Sure enough, what happens? Here comes big bad Rome to squash the movement and Simon Actually, instead of putting up a fight, he just surrenders. And actually, they haul him back off to Rome. They put a scarlet robe on him. They parade him through town. They whip him. They beat him. They say, hail to the king of the Jews. And then they put him to death. And then the movement dies. Done. Everybody goes home. Okay, that guy wasn't it. Uh, 60, 70 years after that, another Simon comes on the scene. Simon Bar Barcosaba. 
And he starts to proclaim the self-proclaimed Messiah, the king. And actually the main rabbi of the day, Rabbi Akiba, says, yeah, I think this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to kick out the pagans, deliver us from the oppression of Rome. And so sure enough, again, what happens? A group of people, they rally around him. They start to form this resistance movement. Sure enough, right on cue, here comes Rome. Oh, I forgot to mention, they changed this guy, Simon Barkosaba's name, to Simon Barkokva which means son of the morning star, which is actually a reference to the book of uh, Numbers, looking forward to the day of the future Messiah, right? They believe this is the Messiah. This is the one. Anyway, Rome comes in, drives them out of Jerusalem. They run and flee into the caves, and they pursue them into the caves and kill them, put them to death. And in the death of Simon Bar Kokhba, the whole movement fades. Everybody says, all right, that guy wasn't a guy. They go home. They actually rename him Simon Bar Koziba, which means son of a lie. And they go home. They go through a list of 30 other would-be self-proclaimed messiahs that had their followings. And when they die, right on cue, the movement dies with it. Except for this Jesus, who comes proclaiming to be the king of the Jews, the king of all God's creation, comes proclaiming to be the son of God, the Messiah. People gather around him. Rome, the religious establishment, they put him to death. And the movement explodes. The church explodes when it had no business exploding, right? Because they face stiff opposition in the face of that. These disciples, these apostles, the guys telling these stories, they're going to rot in prison or they're going to be tortured to death. In the early church, to align yourself with Jesus, to become a part of this new movement, meant stiff opposition and persecution and alienation from family and culture and from your neighborhood. Right? It has no, and yet the church thrives. Why? Because they were convinced that they'd seen somebody come walking out of a tomb who defeated the power of death. Where you go throughout the ages, you think about the church around the world today. We were talking about this in the sunrise service. The church around the world today is thriving in the places where it's persecuted the most. Why? Because the spirit of the risen Christ has made himself real to them in their hearts, through the word, through the ministry of the church, convinced them of his ongoing life and ministry, convinced him that he is the long-awaited king and Messiah, and the church is exploding in the places where you wouldn't think it should be. And for me, we could go on and on talking about that all day long. For me, that's the irrefutable testimony, the testimony of the church, the spirit-fueled church through history of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And something has happened after the death of Jesus. New life has burst out of a tomb. We go on and on. But the other thing I'll just highlight here that I'm so thankful for John. You know, in the other Gospels, you get other accounts of Jesus' interaction with eyewitnesses and people after his resurrection. John gives us um, Thomas. So thankful for Thomas. So thankful that John decides to include Thomas. Thomas, he's not there at the original uh, Jesus showing up party. And they all go tell, him, go tell Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, he's, he's risen. And Thomas says, yeah, no thanks. I'm not buying into that. Maybe Thomas, he's not going to be duped. Maybe Thomas has seen all these other would-be Messiah movements out there and see them die and the movement die, and maybe he's just incensed that he fell for it. <laughs> and he started following a Messiah who then was put to death. Or maybe Thomas is just overwhelmed and fearful 
right? He just spent the past three years of his life following this Jesus, and they saw, he just saw him crucified. They wonder if the same authorities are now going to come for him. And so whatever the case, Thomas says, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it. I'm not signing up for this again. I'm not getting back in unless I can put my hands in the nails, in the side. And, and the part that's so special about this is that Jesus doesn't say, all right, well, forget you, Thomas. I told you how many times I'm going to come back three days later. Now the disciples, Mary, everybody's telling you, and you're not going to believe it? Fine, forget it. You live in your unbelief. No, he has his mercy on Thomas and his compassion on Thomas and his doubts and in his struggles and in his cynicism or whatever it is that's holding him back. And he comes to Thomas and he bears his hands. And he bears his side. Thomas, here, put your hands here. Put your hands here. Thomas doesn't even need to. He sees him in all his glory and mercy. He says, my Lord and my God. And why that's meaningful to me is that it's this reminder that if God can, if Jesus can be merciful to Thomas in his struggles, in his doubts, in his unbelief, in his cynicism or whatever, he can be merciful to you in your doubts and in your struggles, in your cynicism, right? He's throwing open the invitation to entrust your life to him, to believe that something new and incredible has happened, and he's going to be patient and merciful with you as you explore that and you consider that and you struggle with that and you doubt with that. This is a merciful Jesus. And so there it is, right? Paul or John, he goes on to say, right? Jesus did many more things. But these things I've written so that you may believe. Right? And I feel that's the same way for the sermon. We could talk all day about all the other legitimate reasons to believe. But we're just giving you these right now, why it is totally legitimate to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But the other part of this, notice what John says. These things are written so that you may believe. And then so that you may believe that this Jesus is the Messiah or that he is the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the, the anointed and sent king who has come sent of the creator to kind of put things back together. That's what it means to be the Messiah. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about that too, but to sum it up, we all, you know in your bones, or I can say this, you were made for deep, meaningful relationship with your creator, your life giver. You were made for deep, meaningful relationship with one another, and you were made for deep, meaningful relationship with his beautiful creation. The power of sin, death, Evil, injustice, it gets in there and it messes it all up and it tears at the phrase of all those relationships. What is the role of the king, the anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah? It's to begin to mend those things, to put those relationships back in their right places. That's actually what shalom means. That's actually what that word peace means. When Jesus declares peace to his disciples, he's not just saying to you, hey, guys, it's all good. He, well, I guess he sort of is, but he's saying to them, no, this project of putting things back together, it's underway. Because I've just defeated the power of sin and death. And I've just defeated the one who, who wields the power of sin and death. It's not completed, mind you. There's still work to be done, but it's underway. That messianic project, this kingdom, this new creation is underway in the defeat of sin and death. Now, the analogy we often use, right, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and got past the, you know, the Nazi lines, 
What did they do? They broke the stranglehold that Germany had over the continent of Europe. And at that time, they all but secured the defeat of Germany and the Nazi forces in Europe. Right? There were still many more battles to play out. There was a lot of more bloody stuff and ugly stuff that had to go through. But essentially, the victory was sealed on that day. Right, And that's the same picture. When Jesus comes walking out of that tomb, man, the power of sin and death has been broken. The power of the one who wields those things has been crushed. There's still battles to play out, but that project is underway. Right, And so the invitation for you this morning, what John is saying here, it's not just to believe that somebody came walking out of a tomb, which is great in and of itself, but it's to believe the implications of that. The implications that A new day has dawned. New creation is bursting on the scene. This new messianic kingdom is underway. It's an invitation for you to to look at the world and to see all the brokenness and all the darkness and all the hurt and all the pain, to see all the scars, but yet to see that there is light breaking forth, that life is starting to prevail over death, that love is starting to prevail over loss, that Christ is prevailing over all that is not right in his creation. Or the invitation for you this morning is to look to Jesus, who in his own hands and his own size bears those scars of a broken and a wounded and a dark and an evil infested creation, and yet bears in his whole existence now the marks of victory over that darkness and that brokenness. And so John wants you to believe that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And do you hear this for John? And by believing that you may have life. See, for John, believing and seeing the world in that way, right? this is entrance into life, which is such a big thing for John. I mean, if you have a time, go home and do a, like a word study on the word life in the book of John. You'll see it all throughout the book of John. From the opening pages, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. All things were made through Him. Not one thing was made that wasn't made by Him, however that goes. And in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light is shown in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or as we heard Friday night, He shows up to the woman at the well. says, you're drawing water for yourself, and I bet you're going to get thirsty again. You drink from me. And I give you water that will cause you never to be thirsty again. And that water is going to spring up inside of you to wells of eternal life. Or in John 6, after he feeds the 5,000, he comes to disciples. He says, guys, do you understand? I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. Sorry, that has come down from heaven for you. And as you consume me, right, you take me into your inner part. You unite yourself to me. You experience life to the full. Some of the crowd can't buy that, and they dissipate and go away. He says to the disciples, are you going to go with them too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? Who else are we going to turn to? You alone have the words of life. Chapter 10, he comes and says, I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. I care for my sheep. I feed my sheep. I guard my sheep. For sure, there are wolves and thieves out there with the intent to steal and destroy, but I have come that my sheep may have life and have it, what? Abundantly or have it to the full. This is, this is John's concern. Like he's telling you this story. It's not just so you would believe it. You would experience this life. This life that has two components. Life that is eternal, 
right? This great shepherd is also the one who is promising to shepherd his people through the valleys of death into eternal life. And so he says to Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, guys, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, yet though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? This is an incredible blessing in and of itself. Especially the older you get. And you see that maybe looming on the horizon, this wonderful blessing that God, that Christ is the good shepherd who leads his sheep safely through the passages of death to that life eternal. But for John, it's even greater than that too, because for John, it's not just an entirely future thing, but for John, right here, right now, you can begin to experience that life. Right? As you believe that this new creation and kingdom is underway, as you see this Messiah coming, walking out of the tomb, and you entrust your life to him, do you understand that even in that, now all of a sudden, the power of death and the stranglehold that death perhaps had over your life is begun to being broken? I've said before, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, wasn't a follower of Jesus, I'd probably be one of those guys that read existential philosophy or psychology, or was a follower of Nietzsche who basically said, hey, because death wins, life has no meaning, has no purpose, and you're a fool for thinking it does, or you're even more of a fool for wasting your life trying to find that deeper meaning. <laughs> the problem is that doesn't sit well. Nobody likes to hear that. You don't see that on a Hallmark greeting card anywhere. At least I haven't found one yet. But that's the incredible news, right? If Jesus has come walking out of a tomb, defeated the powers of sin and death, that stranglehold of death that robs you of meaning, that robs you of joy, that robs you of the things that you love most dearly, that has been defeated. And now it's no longer true that we've lost into the past our best moments in life. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ, our best days, lived in relationship with him and his people and with all of creation are all yet to come. Because Christ is risen from the tomb, man, life isn't, isn't meaningless anymore. It's full of meaning. Right? Everything you do now has rich meaning. Right? That's why the apostle says, after his great resurrection chapter, brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor now is never in vain because of the resurrection. Every relationship you invest in, every moment of worship you partake in, Every act of justice or compassion that you pursue, every ordinary moment of life now is endowed with eternal meaning because of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is raised from the dead, not only is the power of death defeated, but the power of sin is defeated. Which means that that stuff that used to hold condemnation or judgment over you or that used to hold over you this sentence of inadequate has been defeated. It's been placed on Christ. It's been plunged into the grave and has been left there to rot as Jesus has risen victorious. So now all those things, right? That sin, all the stuff that produced shame and guilt and accusation, all of that is defeated and will never again be a source of accusation, will never be again a source of judgment over you, will never again be something to separate you from that relationship with your father. Will somebody please say amen to that? (laughs) All right. On and on we could go. If your relationship is restored with your creator, you're also liberated from a life of just endless pursuit of these other worthless gods, thinking that if I go in pursuit of these things, I'll find life somewhere. Prosperity, uh, success, comfort, peace, whatever it is. Maybe if I bow the knee to that God and I pledge my life to that God, I'll find meaning and purpose and happiness 
Man, when you restore your relationship with God and that record of sin is canceled, the power of death is defeated, and you find more than enough to satisfy your deepest longings and desires, freeing you from that endless pursuit of those worthless gods. And that's where I'm going to leave, say one last thing. I promise this is the end. I told you I could talk forever about this stuff, but here's the last thing. John doesn't so much say it in this passage, but he reads through the rest of the book. It comes through pretty loud and clear that for John, the resurrection affirms your deepest intuitions about life and your deepest longings, your deepest hopes and desires. And what I mean by that is we all know in our bones, it is our deepest intuition in life that good has to triumph over evil, that light has to triumph over darkness, that life has to triumph over death, that love has to triumph over loss. We're super cynical about that, but we know in our bones that has to be the case. That's why every Hollywood movie basically follows that storyline. <laughs> Not everyone, I guess. There's some that, that don't. Bad guys win and whatever. And we call those artsy films, and they maybe win Oscars, but they don't make a lot of money because those don't resonate with people or they don't speak to the deepest intuitions of our heart. We know that life has to triumph over death, light over darkness, love over loss. You know, and it was C.S. Lewis who said, look, if resurrection isn't true, then your intuitions are playing a dirty trick on you. And he would also say, too, you know, if resurrection is true, then on what grounds do you hold out hope for anything? Right? We're a world, as I said, we're a super cynical world, but yet we're still a world that holds out hope. And if Christ hasn't come walking out of a tomb, if somebody hasn't come walking out of a tomb and death has, hasn't been given a death knell, what Reason do you have for that hope? And the thing is, there's not another religion on the planet. There's not another philosophical system or worldview out there that would dare to say that the one who created all things would enter into that broken creation, take on life himself, suffered into death, so that he could come out walking out of a tomb, crushing the power of sin and death. Amen. And if that's true, that just affirms your deepest intuitions, your deepest longings, your deepest desires. And so again, this morning, the invitation is for you. With all your cynicism, maybe. With all your brokenness, with all your hurt, with all the heaviness of life. John is just inviting you. Look at the world in just a from a different angle today. See it with all its scars. See it with all its brokenness. See it with all its pain and war and woundedness. But see that a new day has dawned. And the ultimate power of sin and death has been defeated. Christ has conquered. Or see this Jesus, who bears in his body the scars, who knows the feeling of those scars, who can resonate with your pain, with your hurt, with your doubt, with your struggles, with your sinfulness. He wears it. And yet he's crowned in victory because he's walked out of the tomb. And just consider what that could mean for you and for your life. These things have been written and declared to you so that you may believe, and by believing, find life. And I pray that God would lead you into that life, that abundant life, for your good, for your joy, and for his glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.